first started our marriage, um, really I thought the strength was being able to do everything myself, um, being able to handle anything that came along, um, being able to provide for the family uh, financially, being able to succeed at the job, and uh, doing that all, not needing any outside help, and, and not looking for any outside help either. So life in the military can be very, very, it, what is, it is very demanding. You do have to always, you know, put on that tough, tough face that, you know, everything's okay. And more often than not, it's not. I'm just gone in and out, in and out, and I'm working long hours. It's a very doggy dog world. Everybody's trying to succeed. You present yourself as an invincible entity that doesn't get bothered by family stuff, that uh, doesn't need to talk about mental health, that always has their marriage together. We are experts at compartmentalization. We're able to take an emotion and kind of pack it up and, and just stick it away. However, it's, it's critical for your health that you eventually go back and unpack that emotion and deal with it and the consequences that come along with it. Uh, because if you don't, you're just gonna end up with an entire room full of these undealt with um, emotions and events and wounds. And I think that's kind of where I was when we came back to Charleston. Our marriage was in need of a lot of healing, in, in need of a lot of communication. And one of the things that I ended up doing is taking a step away from work a little bit. I left active duty and uh, started flying out here for the reserves. I think the easiest, the plainest way to put it is that I realized I couldn't do it all by myself, um, that I needed community, that I needed Jesus Christ, um, you know, that I needed a support system to create this healthy life that Lauren and I had already always dreamed of. We got plugged back into Seacoast. We jumped into a small group and it was awesome. It was a great, great group of people, but Noah and I just felt so called to start our own for military families specifically, because we know a lot of military families do attend Seacoast and that just, yeah, we just wanted to start one. We know there's a need there and we wanted to fill that void for some people and see if we could make a difference in people's lives. <laughs> To sum up military service, I would say it's an absolute honor and it's something that looking back, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that um, at all. Not, not a single day, I, I wouldn't change it. Uh, however, it brings to the table just a lot of different stressors. Uh, you know, the military divorce rate is higher than civilian divorce rate. Military suicide rate is higher than uh, civilian suicide rate. Our heart is to just create an environment that is uh, safe, where you can be vulnerable, where you can talk about the things that maybe you can't talk about at your shop and where there's just unwavering support for, for the people around you. Well, welcome to Seacoast. My name is Josh Walters. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you, whatever campus you may be attending, if you're joining online here at the Mount Pleasant campus. So excited to be here to worship with you today. And my question as we're getting started is, are you excited that college football is back? 
Somebody. Come on. I know today, across all of our campuses, we have Tiger fans of every kind showing up with a heavy heart. They're discouraged, praying that we could start over again next week. Carolina fans are celebrating, but don't you worry. We're going to start playing actual college teams in just a few weeks, and so things might shift. We don't know, but uh, man, for just a moment yesterday, sitting around with friends, screaming at the TV, I was so excited to feel normal and have a little college football back. So glad you're here today. Before we get started, I want us to take just a minute to pray, not only for our time together, that God would just show up and, and surprise us in a special and powerful way, but also want to pray for two people in particular. Larry Tran, our keys player, you might have been following his story. He's been in the hospital several weeks now battling COVID and the implications of that. He posted on his page yesterday that he was declaring it a victory day. He passed his swallow test, and we're just going to pray for continued strength with him. And then also want us to pray for Natasha, our North Charleston campus worship pastor. She is on the way to the hospital this morning, and her oxygen levels are dropping. So we just want to surround them at our campuses and here at the church and agree for continued victory and healing in Jesus' name. So let's pray for them in our time together. God, we thank you so much for just the privilege that it is. We do not take it lightly to be able to join here and worship you, uh, to declare that the fight, the battle belongs to you, to encounter you in worship, to open up your word together. And we just pray that it would not return void. Any way that you want to move or work in our hearts today, God, we invite you to do so. We also want to lift up Larry and Natasha to you. We pray COVID be gone in Jesus' name, that they would breathe deeply, continue to heal, and continue to walk in the victory that you paid for for them. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Well, every evening at the Walters household, we've got seven kids and a dog, and so we finish eating dinner. We clean off all the plates, and there comes a point where it's time to do the floors. And so depending on who's doing what, I'll often walk over to the closet. I'll open up the door only to find this nonsense. Does anybody see a problem with this right here? The manufacturers of this vacuum asked themselves, what are people going to do with the cord? And so they installed two knobs on the back to where a person could just slightly bend over, even have something to lean on, wrap it around these two knobs. Then the next time they need it, all they have to do is spin one of the knobs. They take the cord off, and it just lays out easily on the floor. And you can plug it in. Well, because of this nonsense, every now and then, I'll open the closet door, and either because kids have been in and out of the closet and hit it, or gravity has just taken over, this carefully constructed cord ball will fall through on the other side of the handle. And so as if I'm just excited about the opportunity to vacuum already, now I have to untangle a cord ball, pull it through the handle, and plug it in before I can even start actually doing the thing that I came to do, right? So how do I handle it? I'm a godly man, loving husband, right? Sometimes I grunt and I say the name of the person responsible for it. Oh, Katie. Just to communicate subtly that like, hey, I've seen the cord ball, and I'm not any happier this time than the last time, right? So sometimes I do that. Sometimes kids have thrown their book bags or shoes or football helmet and shoulder pad like there'll be other stuff around the vacuum and so instead of carefully removing it I'm like oh I'm like hitting stuff throwing stuff out in the hallway just so they know like oh dad's really not happy again you know sometimes I'll use the actual vacuum like a like battering ram of sorts once I get it all and sort of like watch out Your father is vacuuming you know like, like so hardcore with the Dyson right <laughs> 
either way, the, the thought that I have when I walk into this nonsense is I just can't live like this. Okay. And so I thought today we would take a poll of the people of God just to help me out with this situation. Katie may or may not be in this service. Okay. <laughs> and so we'll, we'll poll Seacoast. So what say you Seacoast? Is this right or wrong? Wrong. Oh, come on. Now, I know some of you voted incorrectly because you favor the female responsible for this, and I don't blame you, okay? She's cute and sweet, but in the many ways you allow her to influence you, dear God, don't let this be one of them. Please. <laughs> Marriage is hard enough already. Just wrap it. Wrap the cord. We'll move on. I have real emotion wrapped up in that. <laughs> I just can't jump into the message. All of a sudden, I like tapped into yesterday all over again. Well, hey, we're in the middle of a, a series called ISO, which stands for In Search Of, and it's a relationship series. We are all in search of meaningful relationship. And in week one, Pastor Josh addressed the, the issue, that, the problem that God solved before the fall, which was loneliness. And the solution to our loneliness is friendship. Last week, Pastor Adam talked about the one character trait or attribute that we're going to need to have good friendships, and that is courage. And this week, I want to talk about the one trait that we're going to need in order to keep our friends. If loneliness was the problem that God solved before sin entered the world, division was the problem that God addressed as a result of it. The only way for us to overcome division, the only way for us to restore relationship is learning as believers how to resolve conflict. Adam and Eve did the one thing that God had asked them not to do. And the moment that they did, they started pointing fingers at each other. Adam said, it was this woman that you gave me, right? And the nature of their disobedience brought about division in their relationship. It separated them from God. It was such a problem that he would have to send his son to die on the cross for our sin, that we might have right relationship with him and that he would empower us to have right relationship with one another. The problem is, is that's hard work. Right. If you have beef with with a friend, there are so many people that oftentimes it's like, you know what? It's going to be easier for me to just let this be, leave this alone and me invest elsewhere than do the hard work of resolving this conflict. Now, you might not leave physically. You might still work at the same office. Your kids might still stay play on the same ball team. You might still attend the same church. You might still live in the same neighborhood. Like physically, you don't go anywhere. But you just resign to trying to resolve this conflict because it's too difficult in some way to work through. Well, if the last year has taught us anything about resolving conflict, it's that collectively we aren't very good at it. <laughs> Would you agree with that? Right, you and I here in this room and online and at all of our campuses are the only things eternal on this side of heaven. Yet our tendency as believers is to allow things that will one day pass away, right? I'm pretty sure we're going to be doing no vacuuming in heaven, but I can lose my junk over the vacuum cord, right? I'm pretty confident you're not going to be asked to wear a mask in heaven, but we can lose our mind, right, over a mask. We allow things that will one day fade away to bring about division and tension in the areas that matter most for us. Well, as with any other topic, marriage or money or leadership, uh, one of the ways that I apply God's word to my, to my life is by memorizing a few key passages that when I bump up in one of these areas, his word would just come to mind and help me walk it out. And when it comes to conflict resolution, my, my life verse, if you will, is Ephesians 4, 
3, and it says, make every effort to promote unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. One of the things that I love about that passage is there's really not much room for interpretation there, is there? If you have conflict with a friend or a neighbor, you can't just be like, well, I tried to give them a call. I haven't sent them a text message. I sent an email. It's like, well, good for you. You know, like make every effort, meaning exhaust every possible option. And the unique thing about conflict is that there's always two people involved, right? You're not going to be able to resolve every conflict. But so long as it depends on you, the call for us as believers is to make every effort to promote unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The nature of the God that we worship, the nature, the essence of the faith that he's called us to is marked by unity and oneness. So we have to do everything we can to promote unity. He goes on in verses four through six to say why. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times he uses the word one, which is not only the number of children that the Walters have, but the biblical number for completion, right? Seven times he's reminding us one, one, one. This thing is marked by unity and oneness. We ought not be casual with conflict. The whole world is divided. And as his church, we ought to model a different way. We ought to model for them a better way of resolving conflict. Now, in theory, we all agree here. But if you're anything like me, man, we all struggle to do it. It is difficult for us to navigate conflict in a way that isn't just getting around it, getting over it, uh, allowing enough time to go by where we don't feel the implications of it, but for us to actually resolve conflict together, to come together, to prioritize the relationship over the problem. And in the context of this verse, I've never read that verse, which has been an anchor verse for me in conflict. I've never really looked at the chapter that it sits in, but Paul, the writer of it, goes on to give us three keys for navigating conflict, kind of gives us a roadmap, if you will, as to how we can do it well. And the first key he gives us is this. We have to put off the behavior of the old man, put off the behavior of the old man. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24 goes on to say this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Everybody say insist, insist. He's not saying like, hey, please consider this. What if, you know, he's like, please listen to me here. This is so important. Insist on it in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. That word futility literally means pointless or useless. There, there was no benefit to their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We have to put off the behavior of the old man. Now, ladies, it's real important that you lean in and lean in and listen here because it's not saying you need to put off your old man. I know some of you might have been thinking about getting rid of the old man for years. That's not permission to do this here. You got to hold on to him a little longer. That was funny for 10 of you. I thought it would be a funny joke. I don't know. 
What do you do? So why is it so important that we put off the behavior of the old man? This past summer, Katie and I went on an epic family vacation. It was the last year. All seven kids will be in our house. Our oldest goes off to college next year, which is crazy. Katie and I got married at 20, and she's 17. So I keep thinking, like, what if she comes home in three years talking about I'm supposed to marry this dude? You're like, you're crazy. What were my parents thinking letting us get married? Anyway, not what I'm talking about. Anyway, we were celebrating with all of our kids the last summer, right? And um, there was not a Starbucks around us. And so usually I went from having Starbucks like every day, just kind of what I do and love, and to not really having it over a couple of, of weeks. And so the day we get back from vacation, I was excited to get back in the office, which is one of the, man, you go away for a couple weeks and you really realize how special this thing that we call church is. I missed our church family so much and worshiping together. And I was excited to just get back here. I pull out of the neighborhood. I'm driving up the road, pull in the turning lane, turn in the shopping center, wait in line. And it wasn't until the woman said, can I take your order that I realized I was sitting in line at Starbucks. Like I hadn't had it in a couple weeks, but something about living in this place, driving these roads, my muscle memory preferences, patterns, it was so ingrained in me that this is what you do on the way to work that I didn't even question it. And so at that moment, I did go ahead and order my Venti Pikes Place, but then I prayed, God, if there's any behaviors in me that you were wanting vacation to disrupt, please don't let me just slip back into those patterns. For each of us, depending on when you accepted Christ, for me, that was 15, 16 years old. For you, it might have been the same, or 25, 45, 55. You have years, or at worst, decades of, of living in your skin of developing your own muscle memory, patterns, preferences, convictions. It's crazy to think that when you enter into a relationship with God through Christ, the Bible tells you that the old is gone, the new has come. You didn't go from a bad man to a, a good man, but a dead man to an alive man. Your spirit is given new life. Problem is it lives in this same flesh that has decades of, of muscle memory and patterns, ways of interacting with people, ways of resolving conflict. It's so important that we put off the old man, because if we're not careful, you'll find yourself in the Starbucks drive through of life, interacting with people, a spirit fully alive and a history of wrecking relationships. Psychologists say it this way. Neural pathways comprised of neurons connected by dendrites, whatever both of those things are. I'm super thankful somebody knows <laughs> what that even means. But it goes on to say, are created in the brain on our habits and behaviors. The number of dendrites increases with the frequency a behavior is performed. Picture these neural pathways as deep grooves or roads in our brain. Our brain cells communicate with each other via a process called neuronal firing. When brain cells communicate frequently, the connection between them strengthens and the messages that travel the same pathway in the brain over and over begin to transmit faster and faster. With enough repetition, these behaviors become automatic. Reading, driving, and riding a bike are examples of complicated behaviors that we do automatically because neural pathways have formed. Just because patients have formed neural pathways does not mean that they are stuck with these habits or behaviors forever. As patients participate in new activities, they are training their brains to create new neural pathways. The pathways get stronger with repetition until the behavior is the new normal. Romans 12.2 says it this way, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
That word renewing literally means renovating, to make completely new or better. Man, as we engage in conflict, the first step isn't just to respond or react to it, but for us to say, man, I've got years and decades of patterns and preferences I need to take off of me to really engage in conflict in a way that is going to honor God. So what about you? When it comes to conflict, do you tend to yell? You know, does your voice get loud? Do you get quiet and withdraw? Do you tend to use some, some bowling words? I know some of you do. <laughs> do you? Katie, man, I feel like when we get into conflict, she's like the trial attorney, the jury, the judge. She presents the evidence, and I'm guilty before I've even been able to construct a response. Like some of you are sharp like that. What is your... What is your natural response to conflict? And what, it, what, what would it look like for you to decide, you know what, I'm going to take off the old man. I'm going to take off those behaviors and patterns so that I can engage in this in a way that God wants me to. And what Paul goes on to do here is give us five behaviors of the new man, which is the second thing we have to do. Put on the behavior of the new man. And my prayer for us as we go through this, it's unlikely that all five of these are for each of you. But the hope is that one or two of these as we read through them, it's going to tend to jump off the page for you to pray to and respond to. The first of which is to speak the truth. Speak the truth. Ephesians 4.25 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each of you with his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. That word falsehood literally means to, to lie or intentionally say something that is not true. Brian Adelman is our Irmo campus pastor, and one of his personal goals is that he wants to be able to tell his son, I have never lied to you. And so because of that, he's been catching himself telling those little white parent lies and correcting them. And so the other night he was putting his son to bed and he had his AirPods in and uh, they lay down beside each other on the bed. And he says, Dad, what are you listening to? And Brian said, oh, not, nothing, nothing important. And like kids do, a million questions come. And he said, well, what is it? He said, I'm, I'm listening to the music. Ah, no, it's not music. It's the Yankee game. <laughs> his son asked what you or I would have asked next. Why are you listening to the Yankee game? Right? His dad said, well, because I'm tucking you in. You're going to sleep, but I'm not going to sleep. So I'm just going to lay here and listen to the game while we're here in bed. And his son was like, ah, okay. And here was the thought that came to mind for me when Brian said that story. Your willingness to engage in falsehood anywhere makes you incapable of telling the truth everywhere. If you're willing to engage in any white lies with your kids, with your spouse, if there's areas that you drift into saying things that are not true and you think, ah, they're not really of much significance or consequence, it makes you incapable of telling the truth anywhere. So here's two questions I'd like for you to consider. The first of which is, do I struggle with falsehood? Are there any areas I intentionally don't tell the truth to anyone? Do I struggle with falsehood? And the second is, am I willing to speak the truth? You may not be a person who struggles with falsehood, but that doesn't mean that you're a person who's willing to speak the truth. You might have grown, grown up in a home that was very passive. Your family didn't say hard things. You feel uncomfortable stepping in to conflict. But man, Paul's challenge for us here is don't engage in falsehood and let's be a people who are willing to speak the truth. Second behavior is that we are to question my anger. I've got to speak the truth. Number two, I've got to question my anger. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. 
Oftentimes, I'll wrongly label my anger as sin because of the fruit it brings about in me. Man, accusation in my mind, judgment, the thoughts that I have about people. Like when I get angry, my initial reaction to it isn't very well, right? People do crazy things when they're angry. But what's important for us here is that the passage says, be angry. Like it's okay to be angry, but do not sin. See, the reality about anger is that it's always a secondary emotion. Anytime that, that we get angry is because there's always something underneath it. Anger serves as a, a lousy motivator, but a good indicator. Man, if you react when you feel angry, it can motivate you to do some stuff that you're going to regret later. But if we can question our anger and say, man, I'm angry, what is that about? It can be a good indicator that God's working. There's something that's not right. There's not right. There's division. There's tension in the relationship. I can say, okay, God, what do you want me to do with this? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Man, that's a passage that'll like punch you in the face because there's been way too many nights that I've gone to bed angry. Katie and I will go on a walk with the dog at 10, 11 o'clock at night. We're talking and processing the day. I say something that doesn't come out right and is misunderstood, and that leads to an argument, and here we're trying to resolve it at 1130 at night, exhausted from the day. Does anybody have a testimony of a late-night argument not going good for anyone, right? We've come up with a new rule so as to say, like, hey, after 10 o'clock, nothing good happens in conversation, you know? So we can talk about vacation, talk about anything else. If conflict comes up, we ain't touching it, right? But we hit the bed, unable to work through it, our backs to each other. And anytime that happens, what does the next morning look like? Man, you're waking up to a new day, still smelling the funk of yesterday, thinking like, who's going to say the first word? <laughs> like, maybe I'll go get her coffee. That's kind of like doing something. What do I, you know, it's like, ah, his mercies are made new and you're still dealing with the stuff of yesterday. So as best we can, question our anger. Don't let it motivate you to react right away. Figure out what's behind it. Am I feeling insecure? Am I feeling overlooked? Was I offended in some way? Then pray into having the courage to go and sit down with that person and share what's going on inside of you. Two thoughts for us, the first of which are questions for us. First of which is, what are the feelings behind my anger? Not a question we tend to ask, but maybe right now, if there's some anger you're holding on to, or the next time you get angry, you purposefully ask yourself, okay, what is the feeling behind my anger. Why am I angry? Second question is, am I angry about anything that I've yet to address? Is there some anger you've been stewing over or talking about or maybe processing that you need to process with God and then have a conversation with someone? So I've got to speak the truth. I've got to question my anger. Number three, we can give generously. Give generously. Ephesians 4.28 says, let the thief steal uh, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who is in needs. Comparing the thief and the one who shares, I see two different ends of, of a spectrum. One is very closed-fisted, and the other is very open-handed. The one who shares has made a faith connection between what they have, where it came from, and what they sp are supposed to do with it. They see themselves as a conduit to God's favor and blessing. They're willing to, to freely give, knowing that God can provide much more. They live with an abundance mentality. For the person who's closed-fisted, they're thinking, man, I don't know if, when, or how I'm going to get any more of this. 
And so I'm going to get what I need. In fact, I'm going to get a little more because I may not get it later. They have a scarcity mentality. Well, for the two ends of this spectrum, it's very unlikely that this stays compartmentalized just to your finances and possessions. These two postures creep into every area of our life. And in the midst of conflict, the person who's closed fisted is thinking, I can't believe what you did to me, how you made me feel. What am I going to do about this? Where the person who's open handed, it's a good indication that they're likely also open hearted to say, help me understand. How do we get through this? How can we how can we reason together? Two questions for us to consider as we think about living generously, giving generously. The first of which is, am I open handed or close fisted? Where would I fall on that spectrum? If you were to think about yourself here, am I open handed or close fisted? Where do I fall? The second is, am I generous in my dealings with others? Am I generous in dealing with others? The good news for all of us here is that generosity is a behavior. And I've always hated the phrase, fake it till you feel it. Uh, but this is an area where it's actually served me well. I've been able to behave my way into a belief largely because I have historically been much more closed fisted and Katie is wildly open handed, right? And so I've allowed her to lead and challenge me in this area to where it's become a more natural behavior for me. It's something that we can all grow in. Maybe you can catch a vision from somebody around you that lives much more open handed so that with our finances, possessions, but especially in conflict, man, we might be a people with open hands and open hearts as we engage. So I've got to speak the truth, question my anger, give generously. The fourth behavior is to prioritize people. Prioritize people. Ephesians 4.29 says it this way. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Man, the natural tendency for us when we're experiencing conflict is the me filter, right? How you made me feel. How this is going to impact me. What you must think about me. What am I going to do next? And it's easy for us to prioritize the problem over the person. For us to think about how I'm going to respond to this and how I feel versus thinking, how must he be feeling? How must she be feeling? And as a result of that, we can start putting labels on people. He's a liar. She's lazy, you know, to, to help us justify our own anger and not actually prioritize the person. Jesus told us that in this world, you will have trouble. So we can go ahead and settle it. Those that are close to us relationally, those that might be far from us, those that we love, those that we may not love at all. There is going to be trouble. There are going to be problems. There's going to be conflict in relationship. We also have to commit that I'm going to prioritize the person made in the image of God over the problem that we might be walking through together. A question I'd like for you to consider is this. Does what I say and how I say it edify others? Does what I say and how I say it edify others? That word edification used there in that passage literally means the act of building. So do my words in this moment, does it build them up? When I have conflict, do I point to the way they've always been or the things that they've always done? I love that it says edification for the need in the moment, for the problem we're having right now, for the conflict that we're having right now. Are the words that I'm bringing into the conversation building you up? Are they helping you become the person God has created you to be? Are they bringing glory to him or are they defending my feelings, my preferences, my behaviors? 
so we can ask, are the words I'm saying and how I saying it edifying others? So I've got to speak the truth, question my anger, give generously, prioritize people. And the last behavior Paul gives us is to respond carefully. Respond carefully. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says it this way. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with every form of malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Do you ever question the difference between a response and a reaction? I found it this way online this week. It says, responding while technically a reaction takes into consideration the desired outcome of the interaction. A reaction may result in a positive or negative outcome, whereas a response is engineered to produce a positive or negative outcome. Reacting is emotional. Responding is emotional intelligence. So essentially what it's saying is reacting is old man behavior, right? When something happens and you're angry, you have conflict with one another and you just react to it, lash out, tell them what's on your mind, you know, try to step in and make it right. That's, that's old man behavior. Responding is purposefully engineering what you hope to be a positive outcome, taking off the behavior of the old man, putting on some of these behaviors of the new man and responding in a way that's going to promote unity and glorify God. This is often not our natural response. It's more of a learned behavior for us to respond carefully, to go to God first, to take off some behaviors, to put on some new behaviors. Two questions I could ask as you, as you try to respond instead of react. The first of which is just realizing what's normal for you. Do I tend to respond or react? Do I tend to respond or react? Secondly, would kindness, compassion, and forgiveness be words used to describe my interactions with others. So I've got to take off the old man. I've got to put on the new man. And then number three, I've got to walk in the way of love. Paul concludes chapter four, heading into chapter five by saying, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What's interesting about this text, walk in the way of love, is that it's the only place in the Greek that this language is used in all of the New Testament. The word walking refers to a consistent and purposeful practice, and the way of love means continuing in selfless love. So it brought about the question for me, why do you practice something? In sports, why do you practice your shot or practice your swing? It's to develop muscle memory so that learning the, the right way, a new way of doing something would become second nature for you. I love that he says continually walking in selfless love. It gives me grace to know that, man, we're not going to get it right every time. We're going to have to continue walking this out, continue practicing this, not feeling shame from the failures of yesterday, also not being willing to just settle with conflict, but to say, you know what? I'm going to keep practicing. I'm going to keep working on it. What does this look like for me to take off the behaviors of the old man? It's like, man, conflict resolution. I, I can't imagine anything more difficult, but also more important for us as believers. The nature of our God, the nature of our faith being marked by oneness. But when it comes to conflict, man, we've gotten way too comfortable with just managing it and living in it, especially the last year. But we have to be committed to promoting unity, committed to walking this thing out day by day, doing better, taking baby steps, I remember about a decade ago when Katie and I had 
gone through our, our marriage crisis. She came to me one day with a journal and uh, sat down on the couch and she handed it to me and she said, we just read some of it. And it had all this like, like pet names in it that she used to call me Schnooky. I don't even know what that is. Sounds a little Jersey-like, so I kind of liked it, but I would rather not be called that now. I'm glad she stopped, right? <laughs> but she read through it, and she was like, I just don't feel this way about you anymore. Do you still love me now like you did then? And I was like, man, absolutely not. And the language God gave me was, I, I love you so much more today in the midst of this conflict than I ever did then. Then my love was all about attraction and emotion and dreams of what might be. But in the thick of conflict, man, love is a decision. And the invitation for us in marriage crisis and the invitation for each of you is that in the midst of conflict, our temptation or tendency could be to try to get back to a place where life and relationship was easy. And I want to get back to the place where marriage was fun and flirty, where we just enjoyed being around each other. I want to get back to that place. But in reality, conflict serves as an invitation to go to a new place. That's what I told her in marriage. I don't want to go back to that place. I love you so much more today than I ever did. And right now, I'm inviting you to go somewhere new. And when you hit conflict in relationship, it's an opportunity to trust God more, to know more about yourself, to make the choice to forgive, to make the choice to love, to have to work through this together to get on the same page. We're all going to experience conflict. Sometimes it's going to be about the vacuum cord, right? And sometimes it's going to be about deep soul pain and aches. Yet the call for us is the same, to be a people who promote unity, to resolve conflict that we might glorify God and model a different way for the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, and I'm thankful for these keys and pray for each of us that you would help us in the midst of conflict that we will have to take off our, our old self, the behavior of the old man, and put on that new behavior. For any one of these that you would have highlight for us this weekend, might they not become behaviors we try to walk out on our own, but by the power of your spirit, God, would you help us to love each other well, help us to to, to live in right standing with you, restored, healthy relationship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.